I'm Jim Brown, your Bible teacher here at Grace and Truth Ministries. I have been wrestling with how to start this message. And something came to my mind. I said, I'll just start with that. This message on the end of time has got just dozens of directions to go to. And I got to thinking about Armageddon. Armageddon is mentioned one time in the Bible. It's in the 16th chapter of Revelation. But there are, even though it's mentioned one time, there are other verses that point to Armageddon. Armageddon is the last great battle of the Bible. It's Jesus declaring war against the world and the evil men. You're going to find this all through the Scripture. Look over here in Revelation. In Revelation, the 16th chapter. And I'll read you the verse. I'll read you the verses right before it. And then I'll read this verse. The I don't even know how to start this. Just start reading here in verse... In verse uh, 10. And the fifth angel sounded. These, not sounded, poured out his vial. A vial was a bowl. I've tried to illustrate this before to you. When, When some castle would go to war with another army and they would surround the castle this other army and the army that's defending himself would put these bowls up on the wall and they would fill them full of lead or hot lava or rocks and when these guys would bring their ladders up they would pour these down on them that's what these bowls are like there's seven bowls There are seven trumpets, seven trumpets. Remember, a trumpet was a voice. A trumpet is a voice. It makes it more interesting when you find that out. Let me just show you something to show you that a trumpet was a voice. Look over here, and I'm going to come right back to this right here. But go over here to 1 Corinthians the 14th chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, and it will tell you here in this chapter about trumpets. 1 Corinthians 14, and when it will say, uh, we'll start reading here, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue, verse 4, edifieth himself. Well, there's nothing... The Bible never teaches us to edify self. Edify is the word oiko, O-I-K-O-D-O-M-E-O. Oikodomeo comes from oikos, which is the word house or family, and domeo, which is our word dome, which means roof. When the roof was finished, they said the house was finished. So this... And the Bible says agape edifies the house of God. It edifies the church. It doesn't edify oneself. This is a reprimand here. 
And then he says, I would that you all spoke with glossa, not jibber-jabber, not Pentecostal tongues, with glossa, with glossa. We get our word glossary from that. That's a section of a book that's somewhat difficult that has word definitions in the glossary that are hard to understand. And it means foreign language. So he says, I would that all spoke with foreign languages, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesied than he that speaketh with glossa, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. The church has to be edified, not the man. Notice that. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation, apocalypsis, and take the cover off, or by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine. Even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, if you hear somebody playing stardust, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, well, that's not a trumpet sound going to battle. That's not going to help. you got to either, a trumpet has to either be sounding charge, or it has to be sounding reveille, meaning to get up in the morning, or it has to be sounding taps. Trumpets were voices that told the soldiers what to do. That's really simple. And then he says, If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? Well, now back over here. Let's go back to Revelation. And he's talking here, and he says, in the fifth and the tenth verse of the sixteenth chapter, the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial. On the great river Euphrates. Now you're going to find. Let me finish reading this verse. And the water thereof dried up. That the way of the kings of the east. Might be prepared. That is really a hard thing to understand. Unless you study the Old Testament. It's not hard when you study the 44th and 45th chapter of Isaiah that the way of the kings of East might be prepared. Let me go ahead and read some of this. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Now notice they're unclean, a catharos, A-K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. What kind of a animal is a frog it's an amphibian amphibian has a dual nature it is a water 
and a land animal. It has to have water in order for it to breathe correctly and has to go in and out of the water all the time. So this has to do with the two people that are living in the flesh. You remember the inner man and the outer man? The outer man is the flesh, serves the law of the flesh. The inner man serves the law of God. So people who do not, God does not work on them to get rid of this outer man. They don't have an inner man. This is people who are who are falling away from the truth. They came out of the mouth of the dragon. Dragon is not King George and the dragon like we think of. Dragon is the word dracon. D-R-A-K-O-N. Dracon means to fascinate or to speak smooth words. That's amazing. I don't know why they translated that. Dragon just means to fascinate, to make to feel good. Has the basic same meaning as as serpent in Genesis three and one. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. N a c h a s h means to enchant or to feel good. Then let's read on. Uh, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. So it's going to have a dual nature coming out of the smooth-talking dragon. That's what that's what fools people is these smooth-talking preachers out here. And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So notice these are all evil beings. And they are the spirits of devils. Love the word devil. It's daemonion. D-A-I-M-O-N-I-O-N. It's our word demon. It means to distribute fortunes. So evidently this is a person or a being or an entity that has evil evil ideas in their mind and they're saying things that's not true to seduce people working miracles miracles I like the word miracle it's not what our word miracle would be it's the word Simeon that's exactly when the Pharisees come to Jesus and give us a sign a sign means a pointer Something that points to what something means. And the Bible says in the first chapter of Revelation, the first verse, that these are pointers all through Revelation. Working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world that gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. Here is that battle. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. What in the world does that mean? Well, they had about 220 guards on the temple. On the temple. They had 220 of them. I don't know where they were. I've read this out of one of Edersheim's books. 220 guards. 
This was very serious to be a guard at the temple. Here's the entrance to the temple. Here's the veil. Here is the uh, uh, table of showbread. Here's the altar of incense. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the seven candlesticks. Here is the brazen sea and the, and the altar. And they had to guard all of this so that some chicken or something couldn't wander in here. That's an unclean animal. And they had to get rid of unclean animals that wander into this area. They, had, they stayed on guard all night. And if you went to sleep on the job, they had what they called a man of the mountain, speaking of Mount Moriah, where the temple was, man of the mountain of the house of God. Of He was in charge of all the guards here. And if you come around and you're on guard wherever you were, and if somehow you fell asleep, he would burn your clothes. What's this going to equate with? Our robes have been made white in the blood of Christ. And if we're asleep, we're going to lose our garments. Now look over here in, look over here in, I believe it's the fourth chapter of Revelation. In the fourth chapter, or in the, excuse me, the third chapter, and he says, there's a man here. This is the church of Laodicea. In verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold, that I would that you were hot, cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased in goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in a fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. See, the Bible talks about being unclothed to all these priests and that the, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with thy salve that thou mayest see. And he's talking about here having the clothes on. And then he says in the seventh chapter, there are men all around the throne of God that are there wearing what robes of white. And the angel asked John, do you know what these are? And he says, I do not know. He said, these are those who made their robes white in the blood of Christ. Now, let's go back over there and look at, look at this. Blessed he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked. And that the... The righteousness of the clothing is the blood of Christ, and that's the picture of the white robes of righteousness that they see as shame. And he gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Armageddon says a lot. It's mentioned one time in the Bible. It's implied all through the Bible, all through Revelation. Armageddon comes from Har, Har and Megiddo. Har 
N-M-E-G-I-D-D-O. It means, it means rendezvous in the mountain. Har means mountain, and Megiddo means rendezvous. A rendezvous is a particular appointed time that's appointed by God. That's what it's talking about. Now, I'm going to show you some of these various places that are pointed this. I keep saying, all of Revelation is not sequence of events. John may be looking at some place, something over here from this viewpoint, and then he may be looking at it from this viewpoint over here, but it's the same happening with a different viewpoint. Now, before I go further into these places of Armageddon, I believe this will be the last great battle at the end of time. It'll be when Christ comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those that know not God or that obey not the gospel. That's what it's about. That's in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 8. Now, I want to show you something. Back up to this verse where it says, when you look at that the Euphrates River was dried up, when you're studying Revelation, look for things that happened back over here in the Old Testament. Look over here, Old Testament. The Euphrates River was actually dried up over here in the Old Testament. The thing about the Euphrates River, it is the largest river in the Middle East, and it has more to do with shipping with shipping all of the goods all over that part of the world let me see if i can flip my let's get over here to the here it is here let's get back and see the euphrates this is talking about something that actually happened Everything in the New Testament in Revelation is about something that happened over here in the Old Testament. And the reason it's dried up is to make the way for the kings of the East. Let me see if I can get this thing. I'm going to need this map right here. All right, well, here's the Euphrates right here. This is the Euphrates River. Babylon is on the Euphrates River. Baghdad is right here on the Tigris River. The word Mesopotamia means between the rivers. That's what Mesopotamia, M-E-S-O-P, Mesopotamia. I remember hearing about Mesopotamia as a kid, had no idea what it was. Mesopotamia is Iraq. It's a, it's a picture of Iraq here in this area right here. And Babel is right about, it's about 100 miles north of the Persian, of the Persian Gulf. And Baghdad is just about where Nineveh was. That was the capital city of the uh, Assyrian Empire. Now, 
I wanted I wanted to show you that because I'm going to be showing you these things right here. Now, let me show you where the Euphrates was blocked up. The Euphrates, the kings of the east, that this is a reference to, the whole idea of this is so the kings of the east will have a way. In the Old Testament, the kings of the east were Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. This was the kings of the east that the Bible even speaks of. Now look here in Isaiah. Go to Isaiah, the 49th, excuse me, I'll get it right in a minute. The 44th chapter, Isaiah 44. This is important that you understand this because this is going to happen at the end of time. The, the Euphrates is a picture of the merchandisers of the world because, let me get a clearer picture of that. Let me get over here some other picture. Okay, let me get over here and I'll get to it. All right, here it is right here. This is the, this is a rack right here. It looks like a kind of like a pan or something with a little handle on down here. That's the Euphrates River here coming through here. This was the busiest river of the east. It started up here in the Caucasus Mountains and ends up down here in the Persian Gulf. And they shipped goods all over the world by the means of the Euphrates River. It was the most important river in the Middle East. It, they would, it, when they dried it up, when they shipped things, that was to make it possible for people to get the goods of the world. I, I talked to you here a couple of messages ago about how the Euphrates River will dry up and all the goods of the world are going to go downstream and going to be dead. Well, let's read here. Let's read here in Isaiah. Isaiah, the 44th chapter, that's what this is talking about. Isaiah 44. This was what the Euphrates was dried up in the ancient world by Cyrus. Babylon said, we can't be conquered. We're too mighty. You can go into McClinic and Strong and you can look up Babylon. And they'll tell you all about Babylon. And Babylon was the mother of all idolatry. And they'll tell you that the river went around it and went through it. And they'll tell you that there was a seven-tier bridge going across the river that you could walk across this seven-tier bridge. And Babylon was actually 14 miles 
long, 14 miles wide, 14 miles on every side. When you came out across, when you came out in the, into the desert and you saw Babylon over here from a distance, you think, what in the world is that? It was a magnificent city and you had the hanging gardens of Babylon that they had all kinds of watering systems and conduits going through there and you could see this thing blossoming in the middle of the desert. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was magnificent. Well, they said we can't be conquered. Well, the thing is, the thing is, Cyrus is over here. Cyrus is the is the king of Persia. He's not the first king of Persia, but he's the only, he's the first biblical king that is important to us because he's the guy that conquers Babylon. And he says, what I will do, I will go over here above Babylon, I'll go over here above Babylon on the Euphrates, and I'll build a dam of sorts, and I'll run that water out into this, into this Persian, into this Arabian desert. And you know how much the Arabian desert can hold of water? All you'll pour into it. Millions of square miles of sand. So he runs this river off into here. The river dries up and he marches down to conquer Belshazzar. Let's read it here. In verse, this is chapter 44. This is a picture. Boy, this is it's hard to get over all this. This is a picture of the end of time. Why the end of time? Because in, in 586 B.C., that's when, that's when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came in and slaughtered and slaughtered Israel mainly because they wouldn't pay their their taxes or take tribute to Nebuchadnezzar and because God put it in the hearts of these Babylonians to carry Israel away into captivity because they went after Baal and the grove and Shemash and Molech and all of these sun and tree gods. So God has Nebuchadnezzar carry him away in 586 B.C. Well, they're over here in captivity 650 miles away in Babylon. They're carried away naked. They were stripped down and they were carried off naked. Then when you get to 539, at this time, Persia, the Persian kings take over Persia. Persia is Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan. All of these stands is Persia. And they and the king of Persia at this point was never was was Cyrus, and Cyrus goes in to conquer. So what he does, he goes up north of Babylon, runs the river down here into the desert. That's the kings of the east that the Bible speaks about in the 16th chapter of Revelation. Look here, let's read this. All right. All right, in the 44th chapter, 
starting here in in the verse 24 thus saith the lord thy redeemer and he that formed thee from the womb i am the lord that maketh all things that stretcheth forth the heavens alone that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself i frustrate the tokens of liars and make a diviners mad that take that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. This is God doing this. That confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, that saith to the deep, talking about the Euphrates River, be dry, I will dry up thy rivers, that saith of Cyrus, the first guy that comes in to conquer Babylon after they carry Israel away in 586, saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. How in the world can a pagan king be a shepherd? How? Because God's going to move upon Cyrus's mind and upon his heart. He's going to move upon his heart. And he's going to move upon the king after him to rise. He's going to move upon his heart. And he's going to move upon Artaxerxes' heart. The reason Cyrus is going to, God's going to move upon his heart, God's going to put it on Cyrus's heart to have the people go back from Babylon over here to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. It's about 650 miles over there. And then when he gets through giving his decree, his decree is in Second Chronicles the 36th chapter, those last few verses, the last few verses, he's going to have Cyrus come in and overthrow Babylon. And then in 520, Darius ascends the throne in 522. And this is in the second year of Darius's throne. And Darius gives a decree. Now you couldn't, the decrees of the Medes and Persians altered not. In other words, once a decree was given, you cannot alter it. Even the king himself could not change the decree. If when a king, it's kind of like you got a, a sign out here that says 55 miles an hour. Once you got a sign out there, it doesn't do any good to make go down here to the courthouse and say, and tell the city hall, we need to make a sign down here and put 55 miles an hour. There's already one there. Even if somebody cuts it down and goes and throws it in a ditch, it's there according to the law. That's the way the decrees of the Medes and Persians were. When Cyrus gives this decree to rebuild the temple, Darius can't give a decree to rebuild the temple. All he can do is reaffirm the decree of of Cyrus. That's all he can do. And that's what he does. He gets some flack from, I won't go into the story, gets some flack from all the people over here in Israel about their building this 
temple again, building a temple, and there's a man named Tatanai, T-A-T-N-A-I, and he wants to give those guys a hard time, and so they stopped building in 536. So they go from, they build from 538 to 536, and because Tatanai comes along and says, I'm going to go tell the king on you over here in Babylon. I'm going to tell him you're a rebellious people and you've got to stop this. Well, it scares the people. So they stop. They stop for two years. For two years. From 538 to 536. And then they're for 16 years, they're, they're not building. God sends two men, Zechariah, Zechariah and Haggai. He tells them, you tell these people to get busy building that temple again. All that Darius could do was reaffirm this decree, that first decree, according to the sixth chapter of Daniel. Once, once, Darius had given a decree for Daniel to be put in the lion's den. It couldn't be changed, not even by Darius. He couldn't change it. And that's why he goes up over to the the cage where the lions are and yells at Daniel, Daniel, your God will deliver you. Darius believed Daniel's God. And he knew that the decree could not change, that he gave what he had. He had these guys, these princes of, of Persia that hated Daniel because he had favor with the king. So they ganged, up on, they ganged up on David and they went to King Darius and said, Darius, you're the wonderful great king. What you need to do is, is put a decree out that anyone that worships any other god or prays to any god besides you, O great king Darius, that they'll have to go in the lion's den. And as soon as the king says, that sounds like a good idea. Then they run down to Daniel's house and they see him bowing before his window and they run to King Darius and say, he's down there calling on another god and Darius going, oh God, what have I done? Because he loved Daniel. And that's why he went to the, to the lion's den and says, your God will deliver you. I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. So these are like the kings of the east here. So Darius and Cyrus confirmed this first decree, and Artaxerxes comes up in Ezra, in Ezra the seventh chapter, and gives more decrees concerning the supplies for the temple. Supplies. Why would these pagan kings do these things for God's people? Well, it's Zechariah put it this way. In the fourth chapter of Zechariah, he said, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's by the spirit of God that he went and touched the minds of these three kings. Later on, Artaxerxes in Nehemiah, the second chapter, gives, he gives Nehemiah in the second chapter of Nehemiah, he gives him a decree to rebuild 
the city of Jerusalem that has been literally leveled to the ground. So these are the kings of the east. And let's read what they did. Here they are. In verse 26, that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited into the cities of Judah. You shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry. I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. How can he be a shepherd of God? Because he's going to give the decrees to go back and rebuild the temple. That's how he's God's shepherd. And shall perform my pleasure of rebuilding the temple of God. Even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Now look at the next chapter. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. God is calling a pagan king his shepherd. It makes me wonder if Cyrus was a believer. Wouldn't you kind of wonder that yourself? Sure sounds like it. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. When Cyrus marches down that riverbed, let me erase this. When Cyrus marches down the riverbed and he comes to, gets down in Jerusalem, or gets down in Babylon, he's coming down this riverbed He's got a big dam of some sort up here. Do you have any proof besides the Bible? Yes, I do. He comes down. This dam is going to divert the water out here. The The riverbed dries up. He marches down here. Comes in. There's a, there's a two-leaf gates right here going down to the river. The river, they put these two-leaf gates so the women could go down there and they could wash their clothes or do anything they wanted to like that. And the two-leaf gates were open. And guess what? Belshazzar in that fifth chapter of Daniel is in there parting with the vessels of the house of the Lord. And he has Cyrus march in there and say, you're waiting the balance and found wanting. You're dead tonight. And that was the death of Belshazzar that night. Let's read some here. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, I held up his hand, subdues nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. Do you have proof that there was two-leaved gates? Yes. I got an article out of Herodotus. Herodotus is the father of history. He's considered the father of history. I've got two volumes of his book. 
And I'm going to read this to you as soon as I finish this. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness. What does he mean by that? Belshazzar is about five kings down the line from Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. And he's got all the treasures of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away to Babylon. So that's the hidden treasures he's got. And hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I the Lord which called thee by thy name am the God of Israel for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect I have even called thee by thy name I have surnamed thee though thou hast not known me God surnamed Cyrus 200 years before he was born that he would do this this i am the lord there is none else there is no god beside me i girded thee and though thou hast not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there is none beside me i am the lord and there is none else i form the light and create darkness i make peace and create evil I, the Lord, do all these things. This this verse that we've quoted so many times, I make peace and create evil, that verse is about Cyrus damming up the river, marching down the riverbed, and slaughtering and killing all of the forces of Belshazzar and Babylon. That's what this verse is about. Don't just quote this verse to somebody. Explain it to them. You want to see what was going on when he come into Babylon? Everything is not going to be a sequence of events. You're going to find him coming into Babylon. You're going to find it in Isaiah the 13th chapter. Isaiah 13. It's not sequential events. It's things that happen. This is a picture of the end of time when God when God brings about the demise of the world system at Armageddon this is a picture of Armageddon because it's like Christ is the picture of all these three kings together making a way for the kings of the earth and that's from the kings of the east and that's why the Euphrates was dried up to destroy all the goods of the world. And we've studied that in the in the eighteenth chapter of of uh, Revelation. Now look here. Look here in the thirteenth chapter of Isaiah. You're gonna find this all through Isaiah. He's talking about in the thirteenth chapter of Isaiah, he's talking about the Medes let me remind you, the Medes, Darius was a Mede king. Cyrus was a Persian king. The Persian and the Mede empire was a dual empire. 
that have a Mede king, that have a Persian king, that have another Mede king, and they would just switch out. The Medes were believed, I've done some research on this, the Medes are supposed to be believed to be the Kurds that reside up here somewhere in northern Iran, close to the Caucasus Mountains. That's the Medes. It's believed that was the Medes. They were they dwelt uh, synthesizing their rule together, and they got along the Medes and the Persians. Now, let me do this right here, right now. Well, let me read this to you. This will tell you when Cyrus goes in to attack Babylon. This will tell you what's going on. And look at chapter 13, Isaiah. Why they do these things, I don't know. They'll put something happening over here, and they'll put it over here when it happened. Now, let's look here at verse 15, chapter 13, Isaiah. Everyone that is found when Cyrus goes into Babylon, everyone that is found loose, walking around, shall be thrust through with spears. And every one that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. You have to go along with what they want to do. Their children shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes. This is what Cyrus, the anointed of God, is going to do by destroying the enemies of Israel. That's kind of like Jesus. When he comes back, he's going to come back to restore this temple right here. He's going to give us new bodies, just like they had a new temple over there, and we are the temple of God. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Ravaged is the word shagal. It means raped. You mean God is... Now, you got to... You got it means raped. <laughs> Boy, that's a hard thing to get a hold of. And God says, I'm doing this evil. That's the context of Isaiah 45 and 7. I make peace and create evil. I'm the one that's causing this to happen. Boy, that's hard to get a hold of, isn't it? You mean God does all this evil? Yes. Behold, I will stir up the Medes. Same thing as the Persians. I'll stir up the Medes against Babylon, which shall not regard silver. You can't buy your way out of this, Belshazzar. No way. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. That won't be enough to get you home free, Mr. Belshazzar. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. In other words, babies that are being carried by their mothers in the womb. I'll have no pity on that, God says. If you read the 13th chapter of of, uh, Hosea, you'll see that when the Assyrians came into northern Israel. Look at that real quick. Look at, look at, look at the thirteenth chapter of Hosea. This is another time factor, but 
It's the same thing. God says all through, I wrote that paper on I will not pity, or does God create evil? And God says, I won't spare anybody. You had no pity for my name. I'll have none for you. And he says here in Hosea, uh, this is very important to look at. In Hosea, the 13th chapter. Hosea 13. This is talking about, Hosea is talking about Ephraim, northern Israel, all through this book. He's talking about when, when the Assyrians come in to carry northern Israel away captive. When they come in, here's what they do. The last, the 13th chapter in verse 15. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The east wind is the Assyrians are going to come in and destroy northern Israel. That's Shalmaneser, Sennacherib, these Assyrian kings are called an east wind. It's because they're coming from the east over here and they're going to carry northern Israel away. Here's what they do to northern Israel. It's hard for people to believe this, that God is behind this. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, the east wind shall come and the wind of the Lord. This is God's wind. That's what Shalmaneser and Sennacherib is. And they're going to murder and kill. And his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up, and he shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria, northern Israel, shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God when Ahab married Jezebel and brought all those sun and tree gods down into northern Israel. That's what he's talking about. They shall fall by the sword, and their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up and ripped open. <laughs> you think God won't create evil? Yes, He will. He says, I will not put up with all this any longer now. Go back over here to the 13th chapter. Their bows shall be, verse 18, their bows shall dash young men to pieces and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. The pregnant women, thou have no pity, God says, you had none for me, I won't have any for you. You don't hear preachers preach on these kind of things, do you? You don't hear preachers preach that Israel ate their children either, do you? And God says, I'll cause you to do that. I'll be starving you so bad. You'll have no food. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, that beautiful city, the beauty of the Chaldean excellency, Chaldea is another name for Babylon, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and it shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. The Bible says this several times. Babylon will never be inhabited again. So when Saddam Hussein came up and said, I'm going to rebuild Babylon on the Euphrates. And no, you're not. God says, that's not going to happen, Buster. 
That's probably why God killed him. Because he says that. He said in the 51st chapter of Jeremiah, it'll never be inhabited again. Now, I don't read something to you. This is out of Herodotus. Very interesting article. He was said to be the father of all history. Let me read this to you. At last, either on the advice of some other person or having thought it out himself, he acted thus. He posted one part of his army at the place where the river enters Babylon. This is talking about, this is talking about Cyrus. He placed his army where the river enters Babylon and another where it comes forth out of the city. And he gave order that when they saw the river become passable, the men should make their way in by the riverbed when he had deposed, disposed his forces and given them his commands. He withdrew with such of his men as were fit for war. And coming to the lake, he did as the queen of Babylon had done. For he opened a canal, so turned the river of the Euphrates into a lake in the desert. As the river water of the Euphrates subsided, its bed became passable, and the Persians who were waiting for this to happen entered the city by way of the water, having the water no higher than the middle of the thigh. They marched through the water to kill and destroy Belshazzar. Yet, if the Babylonians had been prepared for this, had foreseen what Cyrus would do, but they weren't supposed to see it. God had their eyes blind, and they were drunk partying inside there. They would have left the Persians into the city and destroyed them miserably if they'd have been watching. But they weren't. They were partying, and they all drunk. For by shutting all the little gates that led to the river and mounting on the ramparts that ran along the quays that they might have caught them as though in a fish trap, but the Persians came on them unawares. This is, this is the diverting of the river and drying up the Euphrates. That's what it's about. And the Euphrates, when we see the river dried up, we said it in a couple of messages ago, when the Euphrates was dried up, then all of the goods of the world is dried up with it. And the merchants of the world are crying and weeping there in the 18th chapter of Revelation because nobody buys their merchandise anymore. When the Euphrates is dried up, it's over. By the way, did you know that I was doing some searching on the internet? They project the Euphrates will be dried by 2040. In another 18 years, the Euphrates will dry up. Such was the extent of the city that the people who live there say that the 
dwellers in the outer parts were overcome before those in the middle knew that they had been surprised and were holding a feast, dancing and rejoicing until they found out the truth only too well it was too late. In this way, Babylon was taken the first time when we read out of the 18th chapter of Revelation, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. She fell once at the drying of the Euphrates. That's a picture of the merchandising of the world. It's going to dry up. I know that's a scary thing to stop and realize. Do you realize there's certain things you can't buy at the store now? I love banana popsicles. You can't, I've got this bronchial problem. And I like banana popsicles. You can't buy one anywhere. They don't have any at Kroger's. They haven't had any for weeks. If there's certain companies that can't get the supplies. I was talking to Dan up in Wisconsin. Dan Doyle, just two days ago. I said, how's your business going? They've got a concrete company. He said, the business is great. We can't get any supplies. He said, we can't get any of them. But he said, we've got all these contracts to do, but we can't go to work. We have no supplies. That's what happens when you have famine. You have economy going upside down, and it's going upside down right now. Now, this is a picture this Mr. Herodotus, you can get those books, they're reprinted, they're just titled Herodotus. Do you have those? I read that article. They are really good. They, they'll tell you what was going on back. There's also a book, it's called, uh, I have to get you the title of it, it's about the book of Daniel. It was written by a uh, historical scholar. Half the book was written by him and half the book was written by this ex-president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You can forget that guy's part of the book. I mean, that's he doesn't have anything to say. This other guy was a brilliant historian. And if you can get that, that's really good. Anyway, this is all about the end of time. That's what it's about. Let me erase some of this. I'm going to give you some of the verses that's talking about the end of time. And it has to do with the kings of the east. I don't know exactly how to fit that in. I just know that the kings of the east that brought salvation to Israel were Persians. It was Cyrus. Darius and Artaxerxes. Those are the guys that brought salvation to Israel and sent them back home to rebuild their temple that Nebuchadnezzar had leveled to the ground to rebuild their city. When they would destroy a city, they would pull all the walls down and then they would pull all the trees up and they would plow through it and sow salt in it so you couldn't grow anything there anymore. And that's what Israel was like. When, when God left it devastated. Now, 
I want to take you some of these other verses that describe Armageddon. I can't give you everything. Give you, let me go over here to the 38th chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38. This is going to tell you a lot about the end of time. 38th chapter of Ezekiel. takes me a while to get through this this is the things that's going to happen at the end of time 38th chapter of Ezekiel the word of the Lord came into me saying now who is the word of the Lord Jesus, Jesus that's right in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Son of man, set thy face against Gog and Magog. Gog was the mountains. It was these mountains. See these Caucasus mountains right here? That's between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Caucasus. The word Gog comes from the word Caucasus. Ca. They simply hardened the consonant Gog. They called these, this was the land of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most barbaric, low-life people that's ever existed upon the face of the earth. They were Caucasians. They wasn't black. Wooden brown. Bunch of Caucasians. I think Caucasians think they're better than other people. Especially in America because they outnumber all the other people. I, I know they disgust me. I don't like the preachers. I don't like the politicians. Why aren't they disgusting to you? This was the Caucasus Mountains right here. This goes down here into and to this is the land of Iraq and Persia over here or Iran is right over here in this area and this is where the, the Assyrians come down here and carry northern Israel captive in 722 BC let me read something to you the amazing thing you cannot get Gog and Magog out of hardly any books anywhere but, believe it or not, you can get a lot about Gog and Magog out of McClintock and Strong. Just look up Gog, Magog. They called their, they called their mountains Magog. And they called the top of their mountains Gog. And they named their leaders after the height of the mountains and called him Gog. So Gog would be a picture and a type of the man of sin at the end of time. And you can see that as we go through this. And say to Gog and Magog, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Let me show you Meshach and Tubal, okay? There's the... I got this map out of 
out of a book, one of the first books I ever bought when I started preaching in about 1961. It was a book. Uh, it was a book of encyclopedias. It was Zondervan's Victoria Encyclopedia, and it was one volume. And this is the only place I've ever seen this map. I've looked in every one of my books. It's nowhere. This is called the Table of Nations. It describes Table of Nations in Genesis, the 10th chapter. This is where... This is where when when Noah landed on the mountains of Ararat, Ararat, A R A R A T, that is a chain of mountains in eastern Turkey. It's a chain of mountains. And when he landed there, the sons of Japheth migrated up to this area up here, the Caspian between the Caspian Sea and this Black Sea. When they came down here to attack Israel, they came from the east. And they carried them away into captivity up here. They ran into a uh, they ran into a village up here in what we would call they ran into a village up here called Jericho. That had to be where some of these people migrated to and named their named the city up here after this little town of Jericho down here. Now this is, and you have to understand this table of nations to understand certain things. When Shem migrated down to, down to Babel. If God is going to call Shem, we get the word Semitic from Shem. And Shem was God's prophet. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, that Japheth the elder will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan, the sons of Ham, will be servants to Shem. So Shem is God's prophet. That's what he is. And they migrated down here to the land of Haran, that's why, and one of the descendants of Shem was Abraham. So, since Abraham is the descendant of Shem, God's, called, God's got to call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's got to call him out of Ur and take him over here to Beersheba and give him the promise of God there in the 15th chapter of Genesis. He's, that's what he's got to do. And then Canaan's descendants migrated down here to Cush, Put, Mizraim. All these are names that you will see in Genesis 10. This is going to show you, this chapter is going to show you some of the same things that that 44th and 45th chapter of Isaiah say and mention. Let's read some here. And then he says, verse 4, when he says, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Meshach 
and Tubal is mid and eastern Turkey. Those and Meshach and Tubal was in every one of the empires. So therefore, Meshach and Tubal, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, would be Satan. So the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, Gog. Boy, God is in a rage here. I'll put hooks in your jaws. What they would do with the commanding general of some army or a king of an army, as they captured him, they would cut off his thumbs and his big toes. When he didn't have any big toes, he couldn't balance himself and he had no thumbs. He could not raise a weapon up against a king. They would run a, a chain through his jaw, out his mouth, and they would put him under a table and throw him some bread once in a while. God says, I'll do that to you, Gog. God's not going to put up with what people do to his name. He said, I will not pity. And then he says, Gog, I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all them clothed with all sorts of armor, even of great company with bucklers, a buckler was a shield for piercing. And shields of all them handling swords. And here's some of the companies I'm going to bring with you. Persia, Iran, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. I'm going to bring those, Ethiopia, Ethiopia's down here, just below Mizraim, Ethiopia. This is Egypt here, then Ethiopia's down here. He said Ethiopia and Libya. There's the uh, Bay of Libya. I remember when Reagan uh, blockaded that bay so that Gaddafi couldn't get any supplies in there. There's Libya. And Libya, and all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, Gomer's up here somewhere. Oh, I believe it's right here. Gomer, that's up into Russia, in this area of the Assyrians. Gomer, and his bands, the house of Togarma. There it is, right there above. Syria, this is describing all the world that is around Israel. And before we get through this, it's going to talk about how God's going to have all of these come together in a confederacy and attack Israel. That's never happened before. I'm going to show you why we can see that. Let's keep reading. This has to do with the end of all things. Gomer and his bands and of Togarma and the north quarters, all those north. This is talking about all the ancient enemies of Israel. Every one of these has attacked Israel at some time or another, but not all as one conglomerate. That's never happened before. 
and we can show you this as we go further. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. I want you to pay real close attention to something it's going to say here in this next verse. After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. Ezekiel, while he is writing this, he's in captivity in Babylon. Then after Babylon is thrown down, then they're in they're in captivity to to Persia. And then when Persia is cast down by the Greeks, they're in captivity by the Greeks. And then there's four generals that are that was Alexander the Great's generals was Sacamus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, and they never did. They tried to raise up empires, but they were under the rule of those people, and then Rome, the beast with iron teeth, comes along, and then when Rome is brought down, Rome carries Israel away back again into captivity, but not all of Israel because... During the days of Christ, only southern Judah was back from the captivity during Jesus' day. Northern Israel was what they call Samaria. And that was ruled by Joseph or his second-born son Ephraim. So they were never recognized as back. Ephraim had the inheritance of all Israel. And they said when the man that owned the property wasn't there, no one was home. And the ten northern tribes were called the ten lost tribes. So they wasn't home in the first century when Jesus was walking around. I have many things to say on that. Now, so they shall... Come into the land that is brought back from the sword. Let me show you something here. Hold your place there and go over to Luke 21. Luke 21. You've got to tile this together. It's talking about Israel being cut down because of their apostasy going after other gods. And it will tell you here. Verse 20. When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation there was nigh. When did they when did Israel become encamped by armies? Five eighty six BC, when Babylon came in and conquered them. Then they were under Persia, then they were under Greece, then they were under Rome. Then, in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus carried them off again, and for 200 years, they were no Jews were allowed in Jerusalem. And they did not become a nation again until May 14, 1948. May 14, 1948. So, so from 586 all the way to May 48. They have not come back from the sword. But they're back from the sword now. Let's read this. 
For these be the days of, let me add something here, of God's revenge on Israel. That all things which are written may be fulfilled, but woe unto them that, with, that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. We read that the Assyrians ripped their bellies open, they pulled them out. That's verse, that's in the 13th chapter of Hosea. The last two verses. But one to them that are with child and them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land of Israel and wrath upon this people Israel. Now let's read that next verse, which is going to tell us back from the sword. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, Israel, and shall be led away captive into all nations, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all the way. I've got a paper here. I'm going to give Eric a copy. He wanted a copy of it. It's got all these nations that ruled Israel. I gave the I gave y'all a copy of this. This is all the nations that ruled Israel. I put it at the top of Eric's paper. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That takes you all the way back to 586 BC. And then this will take you down through all the nations that have ruled them. And then this is all the kings. This is all the kings of Israel. And then I've got a book called Israel at 40 that came out in 1988. And this gives you the war of independence, how they were completely outnumbered. They were made a nation on May the 14th, May the 14th, 1948. May the 15th, approximately 45 million Arabs declared war against approximately 245,000 Jews. They weren't supposed to win, but they did. And then you've got this Israel at 40, the Sinai War of 1956. We have to be headed towards something really bad. There's going to be great tribulation such as is not from the beginning, no, nor ever shall be. And then here's the six-day war. They were supposed to lose that. They said, I was sitting in an Air Force installation. I believe it was Luke Air Force Base. I was sitting at a table with a bunch of jet pilots. Those guys are really proud people. And one of them said, the United States has got the best pilots in the world. And one of them spoke up. He said, except for the Israelis. He said, you're right. They, they fly by the seat of their pants. They don't shoot until they see the whites of their eyes. And they have brought down more. The figures on this is astounding how they just destroyed. They destroyed the Egyptian Air Force while the Egyptian Air Force was on the ground in this six-day war. They were in the, in the hangars drinking coffee. It's only about 30 minutes from Israel to Egypt. All they had to do was linger a few little while in their hangars 
and Israel come over and just wiped out the Egyptian Air Force. It's astounding how, how God has delivered these people. He said, I'll not forsake you. And then you got the War of Lebanon. You got the Yom Kippur War in here. Yom is the word day. Kippur is our word atonement. It was on the Day of Atonement they were attacked. And everybody and all these armies knew that was in the War of 73. And they, it was in this war that they, they looked like we were going to lose the war. There's a long story to that I won't go into now. These, these are the things that has happened to Israel. Let me go back to where I was. Let's get back. Get back to Ezekiel, the 38th chapter. So, let me read that verse again. Verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. All of these are going to make one large attack on Israel as one entity, and it has never happened before. If you wonder what's going on over there, that's what's going on. I've got a t-shirt that says the World Trade Center came down because Israel celebrated Christmas 4,000 years ago under another name. That's because they went after Baal in the Grove, which is the same thing that Constantine brought in the church and renamed the Christ Mass. And then he says, which have always been waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou. Now, who's he talking to? Thou. He's talking to Gog. Talking to about all these people there. These people are following Gog. All these people. Gog is the head of the Assyrian Empire. Gog is the title of the ancient enemies of God. One time I was in a real estate office and I told this woman, she was a real estate agent's wife, I said, well, God has to attack, Gog has to attack Israel. She said, God has to attack Israel. I said, not God, Gog. She had no idea what I was talking about. Now let's keep reading. Gog, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm against Israel. This is future because they had not come back from the sword as of this chapter. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and I'll put them there, Gog. And thou shalt think an evil thought and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, speaking of Israel. I will go to them that are at rest. Unwalled, by the way, is not in the text. 
that, the, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and being neither bars nor gates. I will take a spoil. This is God thinking in his mind, I'm going to go against Israel and take everything they've got away. To take a spoil and to take a prey and to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the middle of the land of Israel. I'm going to go get all their stuff. Their cattle and everything. That's what Gog is. You might put, instead of Gog, you might put man of sin, the leader of the world situation. Sheba and Dedan. That's down on the bottom of that Israeli, of that Sinai Peninsula there. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions. When they put young lions, they mean the most ferocious spiders. Young lions are very dangerous. Thereof, and shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil, O Gog? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver, gold, and take away cattle and goods, and take a great spoil? You've got to remember, Ezekiel is dwelling somewhere in the neighborhood of, nine, of 595 to 96 B.C. Israel doesn't collapse till 586 B.C. So this is somewhere between 596 and 586. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts of Syria. You're going to bring all these gang with you, and many people with thee, and all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Now let me say this about that. The only way they had to express an army attacking was with all of these horses coming. To them, an army that had many chariots, like the ones that attacked Israel during Asa's time, the Ethiopians had 200 chariots of iron. Chariots of iron had those scythes on the wheels. They had, a, they had these wheels and nobody could stand under those scythes. If that's a wheel, they had these like swords on the side of them. You've seen that on these chariot movies on the Ten Commandments. You see them. You couldn't stand against those. Man, those would go through a crowd. Those were like tanks. They'd just rip people apart. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. That can be the 122,000 out of the ninth chapter of Revelation. 200 million, excuse me. 200 million. And it shall be in the latter days I will bring thee against my land. In the latter times, I'm going to put it in your heart to attack Israel. Wait till it's through. 
I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, Gog, before their eyes. Because I'm going to destroy you, Gog. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants? Are you the man of sin? Are you the king of fierce countenance in Daniel? And the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years, that I bring thee against them. Notice who's going to do the bringing. God says, I'm going to put it in your heart, God, to go against my people, and you watch my speed then. And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury will come up in my face. I'm going to get red in the face at you, Gog. This is a destruction at the end of time. This is the same thing that Jesus is coming back and flaming fire. Same thing. It's the same thing that we which are alive and remain, perilipas, survive this great slaughter, shall not go before those that are asleep. All of these chapters are about the same thing. For in my jealousy and in my, the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely this has never happened in the history of the world. All these nations have attacked Israel, but not as one conglomerate. That's going to happen. That's what's building up to in the Middle East right now. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. I guess so. Because he's in captivity right here. It's got to be talking about, it can't be talking about Persia. It can't be talking about Greece or Rome. It has to be talking about the end of time. And it looks like a lot of that's going on right now. I'm about to run out of time. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down. That's not talking about Pikes Peak. A mountain was the capital city of an empire. God says, I'm going to level all the mountains of the world. And the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains. Who is him? That's Gog. Saith the Lord God, Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead. Plead, rube is the word plead, means to fight against him with pestilence, with the blood and it will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. This is the end. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. I believe we're living in this 
time right now. And I believe the world is so cold. They, the love of many is waxing cold. That word love in the 24th chapter of Matthew is the word agape. Walking in God's commandments is dying in America. Do I have any time, Mike? One minute. Well, I've got so many places to go with this. I hope this is scary to you because it's scary. Just a certain few verses, those that come back from the sword, they shall fall by every nation until the times of this Gentile rule is finished. And the Bible says concerning this, in the 25th verse of Luke 21, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and over the earth. Distress of nations with perplexity. Aporia. In a quandary. No way out. No answer. That's where we're headed. You're looking for an easy way out. It's not there. The Lord is coming back. And i got to go through that 39th chapter. It's about Gog and Magog and all the people that are dying. i got to go through these other chapters. i got to take you through Joel, the third chapter, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. i got to take you through, through Nehemiah, the 14th chapter. I'm not Nehemiah, the 14th. Zechariah, the 14th chapter. i got to take you through that. That's talking about the end of time. These are chapters nobody ever talks about. I'm out of time. I'll come back. I don't even know how to resume except just pick up where I left off. Because there's so many of these chapters about this end time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your magnificent truth. Thank you for everything. Fight our battles, Lord. I don't even know what to ask you for anymore. Help us, Lord, to teach this word so that people can understand it and open up many opportunities for this ministry. We'll give you praise for everything. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I hope that scares you. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and knowledge. <laughs>